You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're continuing with 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 4 again, talking about death and the eternal perspective. We're in this real practical section of 1 Thess, and it's Paul talking a lot about how God wants us to live. We talked a couple weeks ago about God's view of sexuality. We talked last week about God's view of work. And all of this really encompasses and involves, if you want to live life God's way, one lens you can look at it through is it's you're living through an other's focus. And this is not something that generally comes natural to us. This is something that we have to learn and we have to work at because we are naturally very self-absorbed people. And God is not that way. He is outward focused. He created us to be outward focused. And so it represents a challenge. Like what is it that we need? What are the tools that we need in order to allow our focus to shift from always being concerned about am I getting what I need? Am I getting what I want? Are people treating me the way that I want to be treated? To noticing what's going on with others and being able to move and help others and how they live. You know, a very challenging passage on this is Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, I don't know... If I'm just messed up, but every time I read that, it's like a spear into my heart of just knowing how far short I fall of what's being described here. I mean, there are times where I read something like that and I'm like, I just don't even think that's possible. Consider the needs of others as more important. Well, maybe my kids on a good day. Maybe my spouse on our anniversary. But every day, living a lifestyle when you're considering the needs of others as more important than yourself, I mean, you could see the beauty of it. You could see how magical it would be if we all lived out of a concern, a greater concern for others than ourselves. That would be heaven, literally. And so I think, you know, we have to let the challenge of something like this absorb into us because really all the things God's been talking about here, his view of sexuality, his view of work, his view of community, his view of marriage, his view of friendship, his view of relationships comes from this starting point. And he makes it very clear. He says, this is how I am, and this is who Jesus is. This is how Jesus lived his life. And that's the difference. The major difference between Jesus and us is he actually lived this way. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. And they hung him on a cross, too. He's not around anymore. People took advantage of him. They were threatened by him. That picture, though, 
is the salve to the wound of the fall of the human race. That understanding of how can I put together a grid where I begin to see the world as God sees the world. I begin to see my neighbor like God sees my neighbor. I begin to see my fellow man the way that God sees my fellow man and let my heart be changed. And I think what Paul does as he's writing to these guys is he's writing this stuff out. It's very challenging. It's, it's true. It's compelling. But you need tools for this kind of maturity, this kind of growth. So when we look at this and we say, is this a realistic way for people to live? The answer is not apart from God. Not without the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of God's word. The wisdom that God has in a, in a fundamental understanding of what God says is true and valuable. And so what Paul does is he gives them this key aspect. There's something that's fundamental to our understanding that we have to begin to grasp if we're going to be able to even consider the possibility of living an other-centered life. And it's having God's perspective on life and death. Most people in our culture, they have no clue, no idea what's happening in the next life. They live in fear. They push it to the side. I mean, the reality is, is our lives, our world is filled with death. And we go so far and work so hard to keep all of it away from us so that we don't have to consider the reality on a daily basis that each day is one step closer to our last day. Death is something we don't want to talk about. Death is something that confuses us. It scares us. We don't know what to say. We all know people who have died. We all know people who have loved ones who have died, people who have been close to them. And it's very awkward. It's very strange. You know, I'm sorry for your loss. You know, we have these sort of prepackaged things to say because no one knows what to say. No one knows how to think about it. We definitely think of it as it's the worst thing that can happen to you, which is not God's perspective at all. And we just live in ignorance and fear. And it very much, your view on death very much affects the way you live your life. It has a huge impact on how you see what life is about, how you see the use of your resources, your time, your energy, your connection with others. There's different views of the afterlife. You know, some people think there's no afterlife. This is it. We're born, we live, we die, and we cease to exist. This is common among atheism. And so in an atheistic worldview, we are basically here by accident. We have no reason, we have no purpose. We are chemicals reacting in a specific way, and we are, as human beings, reacting in such a way that we think we have consciousness and life and choice, but we don't. 
And all we have is just the time that we're here. And so the logic that flows out of that is, is that we should get as much for ourselves while we, while we can. As much pleasure, as much joy. There's that movie Cloud Atlas. They had that great quote, the weak are meat and the strong will eat. Now, listen, I'm not saying that atheists live this way. I'm not, some atheists are very moral people. They could be very compassionate people. They could be very concerned people who live by a very strict code of helping others. All I'm saying is that when they do so, they are living in contradiction to their beliefs. If this is just about you and your time, then you should get yours. The opposite extreme would also make sense. Hedonism, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Nothing matters but the moment. Just live for what you're doing right now. Get as much power and as much experience and as much sex and as much happiness and as much uh, as many thrills as you can in this life because when you cease to exist, it's over. A good proportion of the world believes in reincarnation, which I think is very attractive. I mean, on the playground, what did you always want? You wanted the do-over, right? D-O. And the idea, the thought that we would keep living life over and over and over until we get it right is pretty attractive, Buddhism, Hinduism, all have roots firmly planted in the idea that we get to try and try and try again. Karmic law is super attractive. When you look at it on the surface, this idea, like, I think we look out into the world and we say, where is the justice? Why do bad people get away with it? Why do good things happen to bad people? Where is the sense of cosmic right where good people get to do good things and bad people have to pay the price for the bad things that they do? And for many, karmic law sounds very attractive in that, that there's just some kind of balance in the universe. And if you do bad, bad things happen to you. And if you look at somebody who's a very good person, an innocent person, a child who hasn't done anything wrong and they get cancer or they get attacked or they're poor or they're starving, then you say, well, they must have done something in a previous life and that's why that's happening. And what that reasoning does is it disarms you from caring about suffering people. In fact, when you play karmic law out, someone who is suffering should not be helped because they are paying the price for something they did. This is how Buddhist and, and Hindu countries have, a, have their roots in a caste system with untouchable people who suffer, and it's, it's immoral to help the poor because you're interfering with karmic law. There's the idea that our spirit lives on, but we lose our individuality. We just sort of melt back into the great whole, nirvana. Another Buddhist and Hindu idea is you keep reliving your life over and over and over again until you get it right. And then when you're, you finally reach that higher plane and you've learned what you need to learn, you cease to exist. 
and you lose your individuality, right and wrong are an illusion, and eventually everybody goes to the same place. There's something very attractive about that too. But how does that inform you on how to live, on how our choices matter? How does that affect our view of other people? And when we die, do we say, well, they're gone. I'll never see them again. Everything that made that person unique, that formed them, that shaped them over many lives, they reach a point of a higher plane and then they lose all that experience. The slate is wiped clean. And there's no personhood, there's no connection, there's no relating in the afterlife. There's problems with that view. Paul says in 1 Thess 4.13, he says, and now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to the Christians who have died. So you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope. If you want to have the hope of living a life that considers the needs of others as more important than yourself, the beginning of that is to know that you are eternally wealthy, that your needs, your wants, your personhood is beloved, is intact, and is eternally secure that you and I are on the beginning of a journey that goes from now into eternity future. And we can grow, and we can learn, and we can connect, and we take all of that with us and continue to build a life into the next life. Death is not the end of life, he says. It can be the beginning of a new and better life when we shuffle off this mortal coil. That is not the worst thing that can happen to somebody. That is freedom and the beginning of the true kind of life that God created us for. Charles Spurgeon wrote, he's one of my favorite old-timey pastors. He was writing in a time. I mean, he just sound, he's like the Shakespeare of pastors. He says, there's an essential difference between the decease of the godly and the death of the ungodly. Death comes to the ungodly man as a penal infliction, but to the righteous as a summons to his father's palace. To the sinner, it is an execution. To the saint, an undressing from his sins and infirmities. Death to the wicked is the king of terrors. But death to the saint is the end of terrors, the commencement of glory. What a powerful truth that if we believed, if we owned, if we accepted, would fundamentally change the way we live our lives. Because we would know there's going to come a time, my time is going to come but I don't have to worry about what that time will be, when it will be, and what am I gonna do? How am I gonna take care of myself? I'm being called home to dad. 
along with everyone who ever believed before me, to begin relating without sin, without selfishness, without pain, and to be able to really begin to connect the way that Adam and Eve were designed to connect in harmony and unity with their fellow man and with God. Paul says in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus comes, God will bring back with Jesus all the Christians who have died. You know, I think we can read stuff like this and we're like, this is weird. We're talking about the rapture. It's strange, but it's really no more strange than the resurrection itself which we have so much evidence and so much clarity on. What's being described here is a cosmic family reunion. That all of us will be together with the friends and the family and the loved ones, the parents and grandparents and neighbors and coworkers and the children we have lost will be caught up together in a moment and everything will become clear. Jesus' resurrection is so important because it is the proof of the afterlife. Where did he go? If we just cease to exist, how can you come back? It's proof that God has the power over life and death. It's proof that the teachings of Jesus were endorsed by God. The miracles he did were from the creator, the alpha and the omega, the creator God of the universe. And it's proof that he can and he says that he will do the exact same thing for us. He's done it before. We will die and we will rise again to be with him and to be with each other. He says, I could tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not rise to meet him ahead of those who are in their graves. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with, all the, with the call of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. So comfort and encourage each other with these words. There will come a day where everything is set right and all that we've lost will be regained. When I start thinking about passages like this and, and teachings like this, I think about my grandfather. He died just uh, three or four years ago. He became a Christian in his late 80s. And uh, he had retired to Florida and did the, you know, play bridge and golf and shuffle around for 20 years, which he did. And then when they started to get, have health issues, especially my grandma, they moved back to Columbus and they moved into an assistant living place. And grandpa started coming out to hear Bible teachings. And something clicked for him that hadn't clicked before. And he accepted Christ and he got baptized and he started a Bible study in his old folks' home. 
We're from a Scottish background, and he called me Laddie Buck. And I remember the day that he came to me and he said, Laddie Buck, I can't get these old farts out to this Bible study. I can get the women, but I just can't get the men. He was so zealous and excited and wanting to be used by God. He talked about how he'd spent all this time living for the wrong things and he wasn't going to do it for one minute longer. I would go over there to the retirement village at Huber Village, a retirement center at Huber Village, and they would have a big open area that used to be able, before COVID, to dine with your loved ones. And we'd eat lunch or we'd eat dinner, and there'd be all these people there. And one of the things that I really saw in my time with him during that phase of his life was to those people in that room, death was a daily companion. They would talk to each other like war veterans. And you hear Bill bought it last night? And they had a piano in the dining room, and whoever died most recently, their photo, their portrait would be on the piano. That's how they broke the news to everyone. And I was sitting in there eating with Pappy, and uh, I said, what's going on, Pappy? He was like, Laddie Buck, it's real simple when you get to my age. You just try to keep your picture off the piano. (laughs) One day at a time. But there's so much benefit. There's so much to gain because when you reach a certain point in your life, you have a connection. You have, you, the veil is pulled back and you see what is really worth living for. You see what matters. You see the preciousness of one thing and one thing only and it's relationships. Nobody reaches out with their last dying breath from their, from their deathbed and says, I just wish I'd spent more time at the office. That's the truth of life and death. And the truth that Paul is bringing them into is the reminder that we should live knowing that we are secure and we are promised that this all ends well. And then we get the freedom to live for something other than ourselves. Because we don't have to worry about that. The Bible's clear we live one life Reincarnation is not a thing according to the scriptures. Hebrews 9, 20, 27, and as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after, his come, after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. You live one life, you live and you die and the question will be, do you want to be with God or do you not want to be with God? The choices that we make in this life do have an impact on eternity. The choice that we make, whether or not we want to receive God's forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and then the decisions that we make and how we treat other people and how we show them the reality of who God is so that they can make that kind of decision. There is no more weighty question in the cosmos then where are you going to go when you die? And how do you know? 
In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul writes, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, you want to know what keeps me going? This point, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. A lot of people think of it as his last will and testament. He's passing the torch to his young disciple, Timothy. He says, you want to know what keeps me going through the beatings and the imprisonments and the starvation and the shipwreck and the snake bites and all the things that I've endured? It's knowing that I could save one more. He's like Schindler at the end of the movie, looking at his life and just saying, what can I do to save one more? That's how he lived his life. That's what he lived his life for. He did not die a wealthy man. He died rich in relationship, knowing that he left a legacy for millions of others that they could find God because he considered the needs of others as more important than himself. Heaven is God's great gift to those who will receive it. God will not force you into a relationship with him. He won't grab you by the hair and pull you kicking and screaming into the next room to have a relationship with him. It says he knocks on the door and he waits for you to open. 2 Peter 3.13 says, but according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We live in such a way as we look to the next life because that's the life that matters. But the choices we make here have a deep impact on that life. The promise of eternity with God and with each other frees us from the selfishness of this life. The thing that drives our selfishness is that eager question, that worry, that concern, am I going to be okay? Do I have what I need? Am I treated the way that I should be treated? And the eternal answer to that question is you have everything. The entire universe is yours. You're a child of God and you're going to spend eternity with him. Your needs are guaranteed to be met. So free your hands from gathering for yourself and begin to serve. Hebrews 2.14, therefore since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise always partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. When we understand God's perspective, death is not something to be feared. It's something to be looked forward to. We're all here spread out with masks in the middle of a global pandemic. Why do we wear these masks? Why do we take all these precautions? It's not because of the fear of death looming over us, I hope. It's because we want to consider the needs of others as more important than ourselves. We don't want others to die before they know and have the chance to know. The idea that we would take actions that would put others' lives at risk 
and cause them in pain and suffering is worth the sacrifice of all that we've done over the last year and all that we may need to continue to do for some time yet, but it's not because we fear death. It's not because we're afraid of a virus. It's because we love. It's because we have to protect those who are vulnerable so that they might see the love of God in us and begin to wonder and question are there really answers to these important things? Freed from the fear of death, we can begin to live with a new perspective. First Cor 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Taunting death. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. He paid for our sins. He destroyed the threat of death. so that we could have joy. Philippians 1.21, for me, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He's old, he's in prison, he's conflicted, and he's like, you know, I might die. And frankly, that would be awesome. But I'm going to stay, and I'm going to fight to stay, because I want to do as much work as I can with the time that I've got. And I'm going to leave, whether I live or die, up to God. And I'm going to live each day as though it's my last day to help pull someone else up out of the muck. God, the freedom in that. I think we get glimpses of that from time to time, but to live that, to live there would be so sweet, so good. Knowing we are taken care of frees us to focus on the needs of others. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them they gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Anyone who wants to be a child of God needs to only call out to them, call out to him in the name of Jesus Christ and say, save me from my sin. Save me from myself. And then we go back to where we started with Paul in 1 Thess 4.13. And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to the Christians who have died so that you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope? You see, I think part of the important understanding that we should grab from this is it's okay to be sad when people die. It's a selfish sadness because we do experience loss. You know, when people are super stoic and super like, you know, it seems super spiritual to me when they say, you know, well, you know, my mom died, my dad died, they're in a better place, I'm doing fine. It's like, really, is that how you feel? I'm way more selfish than that. I feel sad that people I love have been taken away for a time, and I'm gonna miss them. And I think that what Paul is saying here is, he's not saying don't be sorrowful, 
He's saying, don't be sorrowful without hope. Because that hope makes all the difference. The difference between a non-believer and a believer is the hope that comes from knowing we will see one another again. Why don't I pray for us? And I'll keep it short so we can get outside. (laughs) There's no way to even express what the hope of an eternity that you've described can bring to us, God. We know that, the, that those of us who have it, have it in such small measure compared to what you would give us. I just ask that you'll help us to understand this more because we know it will change our lives. We've seen it in others and we want the peace and the assurance and the hope that leads to the freedom to live for others. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.